0: So I know that's not the most comfortable way to begin a sermon, but I hope and I pray that your burden is shared with what's happening in this room and just even hearing those prayers audibly. And I know many of you praying from other locations, not in this room, God has created an opportunity for us to be a part of his kingdom come right now in a time on earth like never before. I I know I say these things all the time, but I hope you know, that's not to make the sermon sound more hype. That's not to make you more excited about a moment. It's to wake you up to the moment you stand in in human history. Stuff's happening right now. And you have breath in your lungs to be loved by God and to overflow with a life of mission to a lost, dark, and broken world. So we started this series, Remnant, last week. And I just hope That if you missed it, number one, you go back and listen to the foundational sermon, Salt and Light, for this whole thing. But this cannot be a sermon series that we preached. This is a vision trajectory setting moment for our church. So I might get repetitive with how many times I end up saying this throughout this series, but I have to clarify this so that we are all on the same page. Last week when I introduced this series, I talked about some research that's been done about renewal in the church and that typically there's a renewal cycle for churches like ours who experience major growth. It starts with a remnant, a small group of people who are praying and contending for God to do something new in their area or in their city. And what happens is God breathes on it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It grows and people are drawn to it. But because the leadership becomes overwhelmed by the growth, they start to systemize and staff and create a culture where everybody's accounted for, everyone's cared for, which is good. But what happens over time is that the masses are catered to and the remnant is drowned out. And so you end up with all these systems and you end up with a church that looks more like a business and an organization than a body of believers who have been set on fire from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I said last week. I said, here's where we're going. Seven years in as a church, building a new building, starting new locations and new places. Like, here's where we're going, guys. What if instead of catering to the masses and drowning out the remnant, which is the pattern that we will naturally fall into if we don't do something intentional against it, What if instead of doing that, we invited the masses to be a part of the remnant? What if we just invited all these people who are attending to go, hey, what if it was normal at Auburn Community Church to have a vibrant prayer life? What if it was normal to open your Bible and apply it to your life as the rule of life that you actually live in? What if it was normal to walk in the ways of Jesus? What if it didn't stand out for someone's life to be being transformed? What if cultural Christianity stood out more than real Christianity? And we were like, that's strange because people are actually falling into what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus and a participant in the kingdom of God. And the great thing about this is I'm I'm not making this up. This is literally what happened when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. The most important sermon ever preached. When Jesus dropped the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't on a mountain shouting to the masses. He was sitting teaching his disciples and inviting the masses to listen in. This is what my kingdom is all about. And the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus spitting out impossible standards for following him. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus outlining, hey, this is the culture of the kingdom that I came to build, and you are invited to be a participant in it. And I'll just tell you, for me personally, it has rocked my world how much I've ignored the Sermon on the Mount. It has rocked my world how much I've misapplied the blatant teachings of Jesus and made an excuse. Well, he's doing that because it's impossible and he's gonna die on the cross and forgive us. And then all we have to do is pray a prayer. And then if we obey God, like it's a good thing, but it's kind of like bonus points. And no, 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 no. I was taught that and I believed that, but Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, you you wanna be in my kingdom? Your life looks this way. So here's the prayer of this series. We'll put this on the screen again. It's transform us, God, from being consumers of Jesus's merit to being disciples of Jesus's way. This is what we're believing for. What's a consumer of Jesus' merit? It means your entire spirituality is banking on a consumption of the righteousness of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. But all you ever do in your relationship with him is consume that forgiveness and it never overflows into a lifestyle of true obedience. So what that does is it's the reason why your life doesn't have true transformation and it's the reason why you're so inconsistent because you believed a gospel that was about being justified and re-justified repeatedly over time, not one that's about participation in the here and now in the kingdom of God that makes you more like Jesus over time. I have given it all up to follow him and it's not perfect, but I am devoted. And so we want people to go, I'm a disciple of Jesus's way because that's what Christianity is. Now I wanna say, I am not up here preaching super convicting, hard messages just to be that guy. I feel like we need to stop in this moment because as I got this one ready, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Where Jesus is about to go in the Sermon on the Mount, it's even harder than last week, 10 times harder. And I'm like, okay, they're going to just think, oh, you're just doing this to be that convicting guy who calls everybody to feel bad about themselves. And and, and I kind of had this internal dialogue where I wanted to tell you what I want more than anything is not for you to feel bad as I preach. What I want is for true transformation to result if you believe what you are hearing. One of the most convicting questions for me as a preacher, and the reason why this series is hitting different than anything I've ever been a part of before, is because I had to ask myself, if people listening to me actually listened and, and believed and applied everything I taught them, would their life result in a one-time commitment to Jesus as Lord, or would their life result in a lifestyle of obedience that was set on him? And, that, and that's a challenging question for me. Not that it's all on me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit within you. But I've gone, okay, what does it look like for me to make it clear? That's the end game. I want true transformation for you. Not a lifestyle that looks like, well, I read about in the Bible these crazy things that are happening, but my life doesn't really participate in them. No, I want your family set on fire for the glory of God. I want you to get, for you to get invited into what you're watching so many others experience. I want that for you. And that's why I'm willing to go to the hard places. And so part two of our Remnant series is going to be titled, The Kingdom Heart. The Kingdom Heart. And we're gonna kick off this moment by giving you a chance to ask a Christian cliche question to the person next to you. Can you look at somebody next to you and ask them, how's your heart? How's your heart? Just ask them, how's your heart? How's your heart? (laughs) Such a coffee house Christian cliche. How's your heart? And, and everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is like, why are they always talking about heart conditions? Like, they need to see a doctor. What is the deal? Listen, this is a Christian question that exists to get beneath the surface of how are you. So when you tell someone how are you, that doesn't mean tell me how you really are. That means say good, how are you, move on, I checked on you. How's your heart is a Christian way of going, talk to me. Tell me, tell me, what, what's really going on beneath the surface? Like, let's go there right here and right now. And Jesus, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to get to the heart of the kingdom of God, he's going to get to the heart of the scriptures, and he's going to get the, to the heart of your sin problem all at the same time. Not the surface level stuff, not the stuff that you would assume, but like he's going to drill down and go, hey, you thought you knew what the kingdom of God was about. Here's what it's really about. You thought you knew what the word of God was about. Here's what's really happening. And you thought you knew what was wrong with you on the inside, but here's what's really happening. And 2000 years ago, when he said what we're about to read, it was the most disorienting thing that has ever been taught in the history of the world. Here's what I mean. Have you ever had some type of assumption? Like you thought you knew how something worked or you thought you knew the state of a relationship or you thought you knew where you were going to be called to live or what career path you were going to go down or who you were going to marry. And all of a sudden there's like a blatant, you were wrong. And that did some of you are like, I'm so grateful <laughs> for that moment that happened. But that initial disorientation of going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've, I've seen it this way the whole time. You're so disoriented because you're, go, you're trying to pick up the pieces of everything that just got shattered right in front of you. And the great thing about that is that spiritually speaking, when that happens, that usually results in your most powerful foundational beliefs about who God is. So you don't need to be afraid of that happening spiritually, but you do need to step into it when there's a moment where that happens. And that moment that's happening as we're reading the Sermon on the Mount is this for me. I am learning personally, and I think we're learning corporately, that spiritual maturity is more about obedience than it is about years I'll let that sink in spiritual maturity is more about obedience than it is about years see we like to equate spiritual maturity with how long you've been a christian but the reality is no matter when you said yes to jesus you are only as spiritual mature spiritually mature as your willingness to say yes to what god called you to do God loves obedience. Obedience is not bonus points for the expert Christians. Obedience is the doorway to a truly transformed life. And so what Jesus is about to say, if it wasn't Jesus saying it, you would probably call it heresy. You would probably go, I was taught something totally different than what you just said. And the great part is, it's Jesus saying it. So if you were taught something that Jesus explicitly comes in and ruins all the assumptions and expectations, guess who's right? The Son of God. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is all about, yeah, like, This is what the law and the prophets are all about. This is how you're called to behave, and you want to push back against it, and you're like, well, I assumed, well, I was taught, and Jesus is like, yeah, well, I'm I'm here, and I wrote it, (laughs) so I'm going to teach it the way you need to apply it, and we're going to let the pieces settle where they need to settle. The kingdom heart, if you brought your Bible, hold it up, hold it up, come on. Oh, wow, people come in locked and loaded and ready to go. Don't have time. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 17. Remember last week, we talked about how the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, this upside down kingdom of God that is being built by the opposite culture of what you see in the world. It begins with a list of things that are a progression of spiritual maturity. It begins with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as Jesus unloads this upside down kingdom where we're called to be salt and light, he gets to a moment where he's pretty sure everyone's about to think he's coming up with something new. Remember, this is a... First century Jewish audience that believes in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, and the prophets as the very word of God. And so Jesus is anticipating in this moment, okay, I just told them something that they have never heard before about what it means to participate in my kingdom, and I'm going to have to stop and make sure they know. I'm not coming up with something new. I'm just telling them the truth that they missed all along. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. If you're there, say, I'm there. Do... But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, somebody say Raka. You just cussed in Aramaic. (laughs) Is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come over and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's go back to verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them one of the most important statements in the whole bible right here y'all you got to get this jesus goes i know what you're thinking you're thinking i got this new teaching and jesus is about to show up in a powerful way with miracles and he just wants to correct i'm not i'm not the new thing that's here to replace the old thing i'm the fulfillment of what you've heard all along so when jesus says i didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it that does not mean that jesus is saying I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to obey it for you so you don't have to. That's usually what I've heard about this passage. But that word fulfill is not the same as the word obey. The word fulfill literally means I am the true embodiment of the heart of what God intended all along. What you see in me is joining up with the story God has written through the law and the prophets, but now the kingdom of God is at hand. Now you see in the flesh, I am what this has been culminating. The word would be, this is the climax of the story. This is that middle point where it's like everything meets at the end. He goes, Ah, I'm not throwing that away. I'm actually joining up with it. And I'm not just joining up with it. I'm upping the standard of what you thought it was. So look down at verse, I think it's 19. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices in teaching and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Y'all, you need to know this. The Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, most righteous people on planet earth 2,000 years ago. All they did was obey God and interpret the word of God. That was their job. Many of them had the entire Old Testament memorized, like at any point could tell you anything the word of God says. And Jesus is going, hey, you know, their righteousness, you're going to need a lot more than what they bring to the table if you're going to enter into my kingdom. Now, even as you hear that, you're like, well, that, that's going to create an impossible standard of obedience. But that word righteousness translated literally means inner goodness, Your inner goodness is going to have to exceed the way the Pharisees and the teachers of the law go about their righteousness before God. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament law, and if you know anything about the history of the Pharisees, their obedience was mostly external adherence to rules given in the law. They would rather have you keep the Sabbath as written by law than actually heal someone as is true of God's heart. See, what they did, y'all need to know this, they replaced the heart of God that's for people for the rules of God that were for external adherence. And what Jesus is going is he's going, no, no, no. Let's get back to the heart. Let's get back to the inner world. Let's get back to the reason why God gave you these laws in the first place. And that's why anger, when the the term murder comes up, Jesus goes, hey, and you need to look at this in verse 21. He says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus goes, the heart of the commandment, do not murder, is not so that you would look at a rule that God wrote and go, oh, haven't killed anybody. Me and God are good. He's like, the heart of do not murder was to get inside of you and go, hey, you have a problem in you called anger. And if you're going to participate in my kingdom, it's not just a kingdom that's built out there by my rule in a physical world. It's a kingdom that begins in a spiritual world called your heart. And I'm here to overcome every ounce of tension that is between you and another human being from the inside out. That's what he means by, I'm taking this further than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I'm upping the law. It's not just about, great, I didn't kill anybody. I'm not OJ, like, I'm good. It's not just, no, I just checked the box. It's like, you like that little dick. And it's like, I I, I checked the box, whatever. No, 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 It's like, hey, do you have like anything in you that, do you get riled up? I told you that word, raka, that's like Aramaic for blockhead. It means you empty-headed person. And then he goes on to say, even someone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that, that, that phrase is a phrase of contempt. It's not just something you say, it's something you feel. When you feel superior to another human being to the degree that their foolishness bothers you and stirs up in you a level of evil that you might not even realize, Jesus says you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. But watch this. That word hell is not like eternal fire hell. It's the word Gehenna, which is a place in Israel. It's the valley of Ben-Hanom, which if you don't know your Old Testament, that's where Ahaz did probably the most evil thing that ever happened in the history of Israel and sacrificed his own children in a fire to the god called Molech. And Jesus is going, you, you got to be careful because your soul will go to the most evil place it can go possible if you give anger even an inch from the inside. And Jesus' method for eradicating that level of inner problem is not, this is so key, y'all, It's not, I'm going to solve this for you. Watch me die for your sins. It's, here's what you gotta learn how to do. You gotta learn to live life my way. And you gotta learn how to make sure if there's even an ounce of tension, when you show up to give your gift, that was the the temple 2,000 years ago where you came to sacrifice. When you show up to go worship God, you remember that there's tension between you and somebody else. What God wants from you is for your heart to be more willing to reconcile with that person than to give your gift. This is the Old Testament saying where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire what's happening in your life relationally more than I desire your songs. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, God literally says, your songs are like clanging cymbals before me because you ignore the people around you. And Jesus is teaching a level of commitment to obeying him that will transform you from the inside out. And this is where I could so easily talk about inside-out transformation, but this is also where I need to fix our assumptions. So everybody look up here. Do not miss this. This is the part that God gave me so clearly and that I hope helps transform your life. I do believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians are transformed by the inside-out and invited into a lifelong process called sanctification where you become more and more like Jesus. But the problem with the way so many of us were taught, this is that we are told, hey, Jesus is not talking about external righteousness like following rules. He's talking about internal righteousness. He's talking about taking the dead condition on the inside of you and making you alive. But what that causes for so many of us is a distance from participation that causes us to go, well, God has to do it from the inside out. So I'll wait for Him to transform me, and it's all grace. And I'll take it, we do this, hands off, it's not me, it's him doing it on the inside of me, and what you don't realize is that as you do that, you negate the part that God has called you to play in the process of you being transformed from the inside out. See, Jesus did not join up with the law and say, I'm the fulfillment of it so that you could ignore it. He joined up with the law to interpret it correctly and go, my followers live this way, and because it's impossible because of sin for them to live this way, I will be the power source from within them that enables them to live a new life. This is a call to obey Jesus. And maybe the inside out transformation that so many of us have been looking for the entire time happens when we actually put our faith into practice and watch him change us from the inside out. It's not an impossible standard so we get to the end of ourselves. It's a new interpretation of the law that now invites you to look inward and actually change. Let's read it one more time. Remember, this is Jesus talking. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks about kingdom all the time. And when he says, whoever... Ignores these commands or doesn't walk by them. What commands is he talking about? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Is he talking about the the Old Testament law or is he talking about the Sermon on the Mount? The answer to that would be yes. Yes and no. No to some of the laws that have become obsolete with the kingdom come of the New Testament, but yes to the way he's interpreting it, which is godly morality and walking in true holiness and walking in right relationship with God and your neighbor. So you can read the Apostle Paul translate all the ways that, hey, there are some laws that like you don't need to spend your life going, no, I don't want pork. No, you can eat bacon and be a follower of Jesus, and you're fine, okay? Some of the dietary restrictions didn't get to the heart, but the parts that got to the heart, Jesus is going... You'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven if you actually practice this and make it a part of your life. And I'm saying some of you have been limited in the transformation that you actually walk in because you have ignored law keeping as being a part of what you're called to do as a believer in Jesus. If you say to someone, keep the law, you automatically sound like a heretic. You're like, how do I get close to God? Well, keep the law. What? No, 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 no. I've read Romans. (laughs) The law, we were released from the law, bound to Christ. We walk with Jesus. Yes. But as you're bound to Christ, there's a new law of the kingdom that you're called to operate in. So when that guy walked up to Jesus and said, Hey, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, Keep the law. Why do we read that story and go, Now, he's tricking him? He really? Jesus tricks people, really. He's thinking to himself, I'm gonna die for you. You need a savior, but I'm not gonna tell you that because I gotta get you to the end of yourself. Y'all, this is how we've been taught about Jesus. What if what Jesus meant by keep the law is that there's something you weren't seeing the whole time and now it's right in front of your face? This is an invitation to kingdom life. And kingdom life begins with a kingdom heart. And a kingdom heart has to be one that's set in total submission and surrender to walking in the ways of Jesus because by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have divine power that people before Jesus did not have to actually live a life in the kingdom of God. Here's one of my favorite verses, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse three. It says, his God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. What if God, has given you everything you need to participate in the kingdom of God right here and right now. But it involves a submission and surrender of your will that costs something, that involves attaching yourself to a model of following Jesus that's not repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and then do that every time you're inconsistent in your faith. What if it's a lifelong journey of what's called apprenticeship, discipleship to Jesus Where you grow in maturity, the more you submit and surrender over time and follow in his ways. I know that what I'm teaching today sounds impossible, and it sounds like something that's like this standard that's over your head, and part of it is. But here's what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. He said, the command, be ye perfect. I love that language. Somebody say ye. Be ye perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. By the way, that command's later in the Sermon on the Mount. See, as is going, Jesus is not saying, hey, walk in my ways, knowing that it's impossible, and then saying, just make sure you apologize and I'll give you grace later. He's saying, walk in my ways, I can't do it. Yeah, I know you can't do it, but over time I'm gonna make you into a creation that can. So here's a perfect example of this. If I told everybody in here, If I face-to-face with you one-on-one, I said, you can run a marathon. Bailey, you can run a marathon, okay? I know you can physically because I've seen you do it. But others, others, okay, some of you would go, that's not physically possible for me. It's not in the cards right now. Maybe a medical issue. Okay, I understand. Then some of you would automatically go, I know I can. I did it last week. We don't like you. But uh, I'm so (laughs) glad you're in good shape. A lot of this room, though, if I said you can run a marathon right here, right now, your body is able to do it. The answer for so many of us would be that's kind of true. See, it's not true right now, because if I tried to do it, I would get so tired a certain amount of time in that I would have to walk, and I mean like jogging the entire time. And some of you would go, no, I I can't do it right now, but actually, your body physically can, it just only can do it on the other side of a certain process of training and practice with someone who knows how to get you to that state. And so if you ran with someone who's like, hey, I know how this works. We're doing this this day, and we're going to eat this, and we're going to go through this progression, and then over time, oh my gosh, it was true that in this moment, your body physically could run a marathon, and maybe that's not today, but through practice, that's the key word, and through following after these orders, oh my gosh, this is actually something I can do over time. It's the same way with spiritual growth. As you mature over time, Jesus shows you what you're capable of as you submit to obedience. And here's the best part about everything I'm teaching you today. This changes the way you fail spiritually. Now, every time you fail, it's not evidence that you might not belong to Jesus. Some of you are having an arm wrestling match with the Holy Spirit about whether or not you're saved every day. And that's preventing your transformation. Now when you fail, it's not, well, I might not even belong to God because the fruit of my, I mean, what, what is happening to me? Why do I keep struggling? Now your failure becomes an evidence that a fight is taking place. I heard someone say, you're in Christ if you're still swimming against the current. If you're still fighting against the desires within you that are taking you away from him, guess what? You're still in the game. Dead things float. Things that live, fight. And if you're still in the fight in hell, my failure doesn't have to be, I got to stop. I got to recalibrate. I got to make a rededication of my rededication and get re, 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 re baptized and go through the process to get a fresh start, fresh start. No, you don't, you don't need a fresh start. Every time there's a failure, the failure becomes an opportunity to learn and walk in humble submission to your rabbi. And you watch the way Jesus treats his disciples. He's always patient, calling them into more. And there are some moments where he's more aggressive than others. There are some moments where it is an arm around his disciples in a conversation. And there are others where it's, get behind me, Satan. And he knows in every step of your, somebody almost just got baptized by how much I just spit. Um, he knows. I don't know what to say. Church can be fun. All right. He knows what it takes to get you there. So his message, the message of Summer on the Mount, everybody look up here. The message is not try harder. The message is train smarter. And see your discipleship to Jesus as a lifelong process that you have fully committed to. I told y'all this commentary, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, and we actually have some in the lobby. We've got this whole new merch area over there with books and stuff that you can check out on your way out today. But that, That version of the kingdom of God that I'm seeing in the Sermon on the Mount is something that I think was at the heart of Jesus' message that we replace with cheap grace. We took our mandate to participate in the kingdom of God, and we put a grace stamp on every failure that was like a band-aid that would make us feel better for a little while and not an invitation to, hey, the basics of what it means to be a part of this kingdom is come and die that you may live. And come and follow him over time. But here's the best part about it. Here's what so many of you have missed. It's not an invitation to go try to do everything he commanded you to do like a checklist. It's an invitation to make his way of life your way of life. Don't miss this. The lifestyle that Jesus lived was a product of the habits he formed. And when you become a follower of Jesus, it's not about, okay, I'm gonna get the Sermon on the Mount, I'm gonna get it tattooed on my body, and I'm just gonna apply it to my life. You'll become just like the Pharisees who did that with the Ten Commandments. And they they didn't get tattoos because that's in the law of the Old Testament, but they put it up somewhere, and they're like, we're gonna do that, we're gonna do that, guess what that is? That's a transaction. Transformation is, wait, how living a life like that is the fruit of something that produces that. Jesus' lifestyle of personal submission to God, of solitude, of silence, of Sabbath, of the things that he did daily produced the life that he lived. So I've said this before, too many of us are trying to do what Jesus did without learning to live like Jesus lived. It's the habits that produce the fruit. And so when Jesus, you got to remember, context is everything. Yes, This is the way you're supposed to try to live your life. But if all you ever do is try harder outside of the context of a discipleship relationship with him, you'll feel like you're on your own and you will fail repeatedly. But when you're walking and abiding in him in loving union, now the lifestyle that you now live, which is different than the rest of the world, you live like what's being taught in the Sermon on the Mount, is producing new results in and through your life so what we're trying to do and what we're believing for at ACC is what if we started teaching people, here's how you live like Jesus lived and the results will take care of themselves. And so explicitly, this is a great example of this. If you watch the way Jesus lives his life in humble submission to God and you watch the way he was willing to love his enemies and you watch the way he modeled reconciliation and peace, it's gonna be really hard to be living your life with the rhythms of Jesus and hold on to bitterness about the person who did something that was unfair to you. And what's going to happen is the Holy Spirit's going to prod your heart, and you're going to go, more than God wants me to sing that song, he wants me to have a hard conversation. And then you're obeying God, and what's happening? Your relationships are transformed, and oh my gosh, you are, your life is transformed. You're a follower of Jesus being made into the likeness of him, being ruled by what's called agape love. Yeah. And now the love of God is ruling your heart, and you're a member of the kingdom of God. It could really happen for you. But it doesn't happen on the other side of, let's try harder this week, and if I miss it, I'll fail and apologize next week. No, no, not It's okay. My, my life exists to be formed by walking in the way of Jesus, and I am a participant in the kingdom of God. Now, we could talk for another hour about the basic steps it takes to do that. We've got some great resources for it. We've got some great talks from the past. Our whole series, The Way, was actually about this, which was in May. And I know a lot of you weren't here, but it's on YouTube. You can check it out whenever. But I wanted to take what Jesus said in this particular passage and apply it to your life right where you are right here today. So what Jesus was doing is modeling how transformation happens, and he did it with two steps. And I want to give both of these to you. Are you guys ready for this? Somebody say kingdom heart. Kingdom Kingdom Heart. heart. This is what it's all about. Two points. Number one. It starts with interpretation over assumption. Interpretation over assumption. What Jesus was doing in this part of the Sermon on the Mount was putting his correct interpretation of the word of God and letting it replace the assumptions of the time. And I would argue that for the vast majority of Auburn Community Church, more of what you have come to believe about your relationship with Jesus is an assumption assumption not true interpretation of what was written. And so what this takes is it takes an an objective look at the New Testament, and this is a lifelong thing, but I was 19 years old, and Francis Chan stood up on a stage, and he said, the best thing you can do in college is delete everything you've ever heard about God and read the New Testament and decide conclusions for yourself based on what's blatantly there. He said, I'm not saying everything you've been taught is bad. He said, but I want you to read this, Matthew to Revelation specifically, and then I want you to ask yourself, what should my life look like? What should my church look like? What should my obedience look like? Just ask. Like, don't interpret it on the basis of what you assumed. Really read it. Dive in and learn what it takes to apply the Bible to your own life. So I did that, and I was shocked by the discrepancies that I saw, not just between what was on the pages and what I saw in the church, but the discrepancies I saw between what I assumed to be true about the word of God and what was actually there. So what you have to learn how to do is you have to learn how to interpret the Bible for yourself. And this is work and it takes time. But it's the reason why one of my, one of the greatest visions I have for what could happen at Auburn Community Church is that people are walking around with what the Bible calls your sword and they actually know how to handle it. And they actually know. This is what's being said here. They're not jumping to the next YouTube video for the next teacher who's willing to bend something in a direction to create an emotional moment. They're looking at the word of God and going, I know who wrote what, and I know where it fits within the redemptive story. And yes, I don't, I don't have like a basis for everything I believe about everything, because nobody has, very few people have time to actually spend forming a worldview like that. But I want you to at least ask the question, do you know what you're doing when, you're, when you open the word of God? One of the best books Courtney and I read in college was called 30 Days to Understanding Your Bible by Max Anders. It's not a fun read. But after 30 days, you will be able to open your Bible to any point, Genesis to Revelation, and know the context of what was happening historically, who wrote it, and why they wrote it. That alone, 30 days later, your handles for the word of God could go up a hundredfold just doing that. But it's about taking the time to go, do I actually know how to receive the word of God as it was actually written? And the great thing about it is, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you who lives to enlighten you to what's true about Christ. So I need some of you to take the time to go, do I know how to interpret what's actually on the page? Because Jesus is throwing off everybody, y'all. Think back to this moment. If you're in that crowd, you are going, you've got to be kidding me. It's not just that I don't kill them. It's that my issue with Frank right next to me is keeping me from a relationship with God and Jesus is going, this is the heart of the kingdom. But you won't get to the heart of the kingdom if you can't get to the heart of the scriptures. And so we gotta go interpretation over assumption. That's number one. Number two is this, application over stagnation. So it's not just that you interpret what it says, it's that you apply it instead of remaining inactive. Jesus said, whoever practices and teaches these things, not whoever perfects them, whoever practices them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, did you notice the other thing he said? He said, the people who ignore it and don't practice or teach it, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is striking. He didn't say, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven if you never practice it. He said, no, you might get in, but apparently in the kingdom of God, There is an eternal existence that we will have in a real context. Y'all, heaven is not an everlasting singing worship service to Jesus. Heaven is a real place, a real kingdom. You're gonna have a job, you're gonna have friends, you're gonna have a life, you're gonna have an existence, you're gonna have a physical body. Like y'all, we're gonna live forever. And Jesus is going, your experience of that kingdom is directly dictated by whether or not you practice what is written on the pages of the word of God. And so for so many of us, we've stagnated in our faith because we've been inactive. And that paralysis hasn't been because we didn't want it. I think for a lot of us, that paralysis has been by that cheap grace band-aid that we've been putting on for so long. I don't need to do anything. He did it all. And yet the kingdom is at your fingertips and Jesus is going, I didn't say that, they said that. I'm saying walk with me, I'm saying be a part of this. I'm saying you can live in the kingdom of God right here and right now. But it takes application over stagnation and it takes over time developing a kingdom heart. So here's what's gonna happen and here's what I believe over time will lead to transformation. Jesus is teaching that correct interpretation plus consistent application equals transformation if you correctly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take what the word of God says and put it to work in your life, you will be transformed. It will not be overnight. It will not be perfect. It will not be without failures and plenty of moments that you're going to regret on that road. It just doesn't have to be this inconsistent collection of failures that the vast majority of us are living in. You want to transform life? Interpret the Bible. Apply it to your life. Watch Jesus go to work. I believe it. That's all I have to say. So uh, you can stand up all over this room. We're gonna go into a moment of worship. It's like when something gets laid out that clearly, yeah, you can stand up. The, uh, The only thing to really do is to decide whether or not you're in. And so right here, right now, we're gonna sing a song that is a little bit old in my mind, but it captures the heart of what it means to live from the inside out, a lifestyle of obedience to God. And I simply wanna submit this moment before you. Do you want more of Jesus? Do you want to live a truly transformed life? And if you do, it takes more than a commitment in a moment. It takes a lifelong dedication going, God, you can have my heart. Did you close your eyes all over this space? If you're listening to this moment right now, I want to pray for you because I know God is making his glory abundantly clear to a few people listening to me right now. If you're here and you go, God, I want a kingdom heart, you just lift your hand right where you are right now. God, I wanna exist in your kingdom, living for what matters most. This message resonated with me. Awesome. Heavenly Father, there's nothing special about a lifted hand. There is something special about a surrendered heart. I pray right now in the mighty name of Jesus that your kingdom would be seen as something we can live in forever. Hey God, right here, as we've experienced your glory together, as we've sung these songs and we've looked to your word, God, this is your moment to take people's hearts and interpret what they need to hear. So God, say it to them. Say it to them loud and clear. Holy Spirit, I pray that you break out over these gatherings today like you have never done in seven years as a church. Call us to true obedience. God, we do not have time to stagnate and waste our lives on some kind of spin on the American dream. God, we wanna live surrendered and submitted even if it costs us everything because Jesus, you are that beautiful. So we love you, we worship you, we sing to you, we give you this moment right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's sing together.